good morning. And uh, as they say, welcome to fall, y'all, right? First Sunday of fall. Anybody enjoying it yet? I don't uh, smell any pumpkin spice, so the cafe is, must be a week behind, but maybe there's some over there. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for coming in. I hope you've been enjoying the, it's almost like God just said, okay, it's fall. Let's turn the temperature down a little bit. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Oh, if we were in control of the weather, uh, it'd, be, it'd be raining here and sun shine over here and be terrible. Some of us are supposed to go uh, to Orlando this week for a conference. What do you guys think? Have you been paying attention to the upcoming hurricane? Think we should go? Pray it back? Push it back? Probably, probably have to cancel that trip. Well, this is the final message, as uh, Steve, I think it was, pointed out, final message in our Themes of Revelation series, and uh, I didn't see the hands, but I, I hope a lot of hands went up, hope every hand went up. I have certainly enjoyed this series. Now, I, I must be honest and say that I, I enjoy more going into a lot of detail, diving in, doing a verse-by-verse, verse, looking at each uh, word or each sentence. I enjoy that more because that's just the way I'm bent. But I realize we can't do that, and, and it might not be beneficial to everybody uh, in, in, in that long, drawn-out uh, period. But we might try that sometime. But we've been kind of hitting the highlights, haven't we? Hitting the highlights and skimming down uh, beneath the surface to grab what we can, and then we come back up and we hit the themes, the major themes. And that's what we've been doing. This is the seventh of seven sermons, so this should be the perfect sermon, right? It's seventh, yeah, but uh, don't count on that. But I am, uh, I am enriched myself when I do a study like this, and I hope you are too. I hope it's been good for you. Uh, it's been a great journey through this last book of the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible, and we've been reminded of some things, you know, and the first and foremost, we've been reminded that Jesus reigns over all right? He reigns over all. He is in charge. And this isn't the, uh, just the Jesus of the manger or the mild and meek Jesus of the Gospels. And there were moments in the Gospels where we got a glimpse of, of his power, you know, not just his emotion there when he turned the tables over, but I'm talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the incredible miracles he performed. But this Jesus of Revelation completes the picture. We get to see all of who he is, and we see that very firmly he's in control, isn't he? He's over all, and he deserves our worship. He will have the last word on evil, pain, and suffering, and he will punish the wicked and reward the righteous. Now, that's kind of the book of Revelation in a nutshell. We can get all caught up in our specific interpretation of how things are going to end at the end of time, but it, there's no use to do that, is there? Because God's going to do it the way God wants to do it, and whether we've got it right or missed something, uh, it's going to happen. It's happening, and that's what we said last week. I had the privilege of preaching at our Taze Valley campus last week, and we, we said there were three big certainties from chapters uh, 20 and 21. 
I'm sorry, 19 and 20, chapters 19 and 20, three big certainties, and they are that judgment day is coming. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever think that, that you, you're going to escape that. You, you might die before that. You might, uh, you, know, you might be somewhere else enjoying some tropical vacation, but you will not escape this day. The apostle Paul said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will stand in front of Almighty God one day. Do you believe that? Now, as we get closer to that day, I think life's going to get harder. I think living as a Christian, as a believer, is going to get harder and harder. It already is, and we can see this in our world, can't we? Christianity, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago used to be predominantly accepted as, you know, this is who we are, this is who our country is. But now we've moved past that, haven't we? We didn't want to. It's not good that we have. We were founded upon a lot of Christian principles, but now our country is marginalizing Christians and saying you're an extremist. If you believe the Bible is true on some of these hot topic social issues, then you're an extremist and you're a danger to our society because we can't progress with you believing in some archaic fairy tale book. And so my advice to you is as life gets harder, number one, get your spiritual house in order. Get your spiritual house in order. Think about you, your family, and your greater family, and just keep going out that way. And I think you should get your financial house in order. You should get your financial house in order. You should get out of debt. Stop spending on credit cards. Get out of debt. Because here's what's going to happen. If you're a slave to the lender, then you're going to have to have, uh, you're gonna, you're, your life is going to depend on the government or somebody else uh, to dictate the terms of your existence. And what you do owe debt for, make sure you can live without it because you might have to give it up and walk away from it. Get, out, get your spiritual house in order. Get your financial house in order. You don't have to live like you're a millionaire. <laughs> or even like your parents did. It took them 20, 30 years to get what they have. A lot of people want to start out that way today, and it's just not always possible. Even if you make a lot of money, don't, don't have a lot of debt. I think this is important as we get closer to Judgment Day because, uh, you, you, you know, up and when, once you get there, you're fine, okay? But to get there, I think it's going to be harder, and I think the Bible plays this out. It's going to be harder for you to live your life with freedom and with independence as a Christian and not be some kind of slave, if you will, to the lender, the government. And remember, the beast is represented, the, the land beast represents a political system. And I believe you should also use this pray for one strategy. This is one of the greatest things I think we've done is that, uh, you know, pinpoint people one at a time and pray for them and build a relationship with them and try to bring them into a relationship with Christ one at a time. And if everybody did that, we could really make some headway. Another big certainty from last week is that Jesus is the winner. We know this. He's the winner, and there's some losers. And this is not a playground. It's a battleground because there's a fight. We're fighting now. We're fighting in, in this world not only for our existence but for uh, you know, for our children, for our grandchildren to have 
the ability to live their life and believe in something, believe in something that's absolute, and that's God and his word. And, of course, we saw the last big certainty from last week is the only way to escape the wrath of God, which is coming, is to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, is to be right with Christ. Chapter 20 ended with all the enemies of Christ being thrown into the lake of fire, and that's not a very pleasant place. I don't think you and I want to spend any time there. Amen? Now, the book of Revelation doesn't intend to tell us when Jesus is coming. Remember, it doesn't intend to tell us when he's coming. I've talked to a lot of people who say, well, he, it might not be the, the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean we can't know the week. And that's kind of silly, isn't it? And then there, I, I've talked to some people, very intelligent, leader-type people who say, well, but I think it's going to be in the fall because it, co- it will coincide with some Jewish festival. I don't know about that. I don't uh, particularly uh, necessarily agree with that. But, hey, the, the point of Revelation is, okay, let's not just wait till fall to be ready. It's what? To be ready every single moment of your life. I love that first song we sang. You know, we're a church that's ready. We're ready. And so when Jesus returns, the problem of evil and pain and suffering, the perseverance of living, as Joel talked about, living life on mission, and the patience of waiting out the war is all going to find its answer in the physical coming presence of Christ. And so our theme for today is the, is the word bride, as you picked up from that first song. How many of you... How many of you ladies, those of you who are married or been married, how, how many of you remember what it was like to be a bride on your wedding day? Anybody got some memories? Yeah, you should all have. That's a big day, isn't it? Being a bride is a big day. And uh, if you're a, a, a husband, then you probably didn't see all that was going on. If you're a father, you know, the best advice that I got, because I had three daughters, the best advice I ever got on, uh, on the weddings uh, was to uh, uh, open your wallet and shut your mouth. And maybe, maybe some of you fathers still have that ahead of you. That's some good advice right there. But I was very blessed. Uh, all our three of our daughters, they, they had a great wedding and uh, married great men good Christian men. And I'm not saying that just because some one of my daughter's in-laws are here today, uh, but they marry great Christian men, and that's so important, so important. Well, one thing we know for sure is that that day, the wedding day, takes a lot of preparation. In 19.7, Revelation 19.7, we read last week, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Make no mistake about it, we the church are the bride of Christ. We are the bride. You're part of the bride. You might think, oh, I'm not a bride. But you're, as part of the church, you're the bride of Christ. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Now, I want to go to chapter 21 today. That's our text 21 and 22. That's kind of what we're going to spring from. And John says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You know, oftentimes the sea represented people coming by boat, by ship to attack. No more threat there. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen to this part. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I know some of you, even today, a lot of widows, a lot of widowers still hurts, doesn't it? Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost good friends. It still hurts. Not in heaven. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Second death. Then came one of the first death is your physical death. This is a spiritual death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And husbands, I'm sure your wife probably remembers your wedding day better than you do. There are a lot of details she probably remembers that you don't. But there's one experience you have that she will never have and that nobody else in the room will ever have. And that's that moment. Remember that moment you're up front with the preacher and your men are standing there, and maybe it's in this building or some other venue, and for the first time on that day, it's supposed to be that way. I'm not sure it always happens that way. Uh, she pops through the door, and, and maybe she comes to the center aisle and she comes around the corner and you get that look for the first time and you see her and it kind of takes your breath away right and that's an experience that's a moment and and if you're uh if you're a husband maybe you can remember that moment and this is kind of the picture we have today we have this picture of the bride we have this picture of the groom seeing the bride and receiving the bride and that moment for us men is a magical moment and it is um a moment of, of truth. It's a moment about how your life is about to change forever for the better. Right, fellas? Can I get an amen from the guys? For the better. Ah, come on. So these last two chapters of Revelation, we get this picture of this glorious wedding day, and it's a glorious day. And these two chapters paint a glorious picture. Now, although you and I, when we think of a bride, may have this picture of this young, beautiful woman in a wedding gown, actually, the bride of the book of Revelation has been through a lot. I mean, she's, she's suffered. This bride on the book of Revelation, the, the end of time bride, she's got some wrinkles and some, uh, uh, some aches and pains. She's been through a lot of trial and tribulation to get to this day. She's endured a whole lot, but she made it. And her garments, once again, are white as snow, washed in the blood of the lamb. And I don't know about you, but in kind of a way that you can appreciate as you get older, one of the most beautiful pictures of a bride and a groom is that 50-year anniversary 
How many of you just out of curiosity in here were able to celebrate a 50-year anniversary? Anybody? Yeah, we've got some. We've got some. And how many of you have got one coming up? You got one coming up. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. All right. Everybody should have raised their hand there, guys, because everybody's got one coming up. And that's a beautiful picture of a, of a bride and a groom who've made it, who've, who've weathered the years and the time and the tribulation. I want to take a look at this bride here with the rest of my time. First, let's take a look at her groom. <laughs> you know, that said old couple up there. And uh, that was just a cue for me to put a picture in there, and I forgot to do that. So <laughs> will you hide that slide for next, <laughs> next service? I forgot to go back and put a picture of an old couple. Yeah, I, I knew there was something else I needed to do. Thanks, Anita. So let's first look at her groom. Let's look at her groom. Jesus is the bridegroom, isn't he? That's what we've been th talking about. That's where our focus has been, not just through the whole Bible, but especially this book of Revelation. He's the bridegroom. And what's he been doing? Well, he's been making preparations for the, for the bride. You remember that passage in John chapter 14 when Jesus pulled his guys together and it was a, kind of an emotional talk. It was, a, it was a very close, intimate session with his disciples. They, were, they could sense that something big was coming. Uh, you know, it was, they were a little nervous. They were a little nervous. There was some anxiety. Uh, they knew that things were heating up, that, the, that the, the Jewish leaders and Romans now both were kind of after Jesus, and they were, I think they were a little nervous. And Jesus said, look, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, this makes sense to us when we look at the components of a Jewish wedding. You know, there were three components of a Jewish wedding. Often there was a prearrangement. There was a time when the marriage was arranged. You know, this still happens in some uh, Middle Eastern and Far Eastern cultures today, there's a prearrangement that's made. And, I, you know, I don't know about you guys, but as a father, I'm okay with that, huh? Anybody else? I would like to be able to pick the husband of my bride. And as I said earlier, I, I did a pretty good job. They didn't know that I did the picking, but each one of them thinks they did their own picking. So uh, there, there was often a prearrangement. You might remember in Genesis chapter 24 when uh, Abraham sent his servant back to his people to find a wife for Isaac. It's an, you know, let's, let's arrange this. And it was prearranged. And then there was a betrothal period. The betrothal period is kind of like our engagement period. There was in the Jewish uh, life, uh, a, a thing called a ketubah, ketubah, which was a, really a signed legal contract that, that for the most part protected the bride, that if the groom changed his mind, there was a legal contract there that he had to pay the parents of the bride. Now, there was no sexual intimacy during this time. They were, they were, uh, they were pure and uh, but they were considered, you know, th this is this is it. You've you've chosen the it's been chosen for you, and this is your husband. This is your wife. You might remember from your understanding of the Christmas story that Joseph. It was during this betrothal period that Joseph 
thought that he might have to divorce Mary quietly. Remember, he thought she had been unfaithful. Now, that would break the ketubah. That would break the legal arrangement. If she was unfaithful, then, you know, it was, it was uh, all deal was off. And, and, you know, I don't have to pay anything to your, your parents or to you. And that Joseph in Matthew 1, because he thought she had been unfaithful. But during this period, it was usually a period of about a year, the, what was the groom doing? Well, he was getting things ready. He was getting things ready. And, you know, I experienced this when I was in Iraq, the, my first deployment, when I was talking to some young, some of our interpreters were, of course, young uh, Iraqi men. And I asked one of them if he was married, and he said, no. He said, I don't have the money yet. I said, what do you have to have money for? I mean, you live off love the first year, right? He said, no, I have to go and add a room to my parents' house because that's where we'll, I'll take my wife, take her into my room. And so they had to have money to build and furnish a room, uh, and that's where the ladies the, usually went to live with the husband at the, at the parents' house, at his parents' house. How many of you would like that, ladies? You don't have to raise your hand. And so that was your new home. <clears throat> And so he had a year to get this room paid for, built and paid for and furnished. And that's what he was supposed to do. Now, we don't, you know, we're not building rooms today. You know, we're building whole houses. Hey, we're going to build you a house, honey. But that was the custom here in this period. And we see that our groom, Jesus, has been building not just a room, but I like the old KJV, the King James Version translation of this word you how many of you remember what it says in my father's house are many what mansions we like that one don't we especially here in america i don't want a room you're gonna build me a room i want a mansion and so actually the word i hate to break it to you is room but jesus was was not at necessarily describing what we would have in heaven. We would have something, but he was he was reminding them this is what jewish grooms do they go build a room and if listen, folks, if it is a room, it'll be the nicest room you ever stayed in. I don't know what the nicest room you ever stayed in uh, is, what hotel or whatever. Maybe it's your own bedroom, but this will be so nice. But Jesus hadn't just been building a room. He's building a whole city. He's building a whole city. It's 1,400 miles cubed. You know, that's a lot of space, and I don't think we'll be bound to the ground in this city it's got eight an 18 inch wall around the city god loves walls the city has valuable stones as foundations and for gates the colors and the beauty here i believe have maxed out john's language it's maxed it out i think there's going to be like nothing we've ever seen before so when jesus used this terminology in john 14 the disciples would have thought oh you know we're he's the groom and finally there was the return of the groom and the wedding festival and the groom comes back the wedding festival you remember that parable in matthew 25 that jesus told about the 10 virgins the 10 young women and they were bridesmaids is what they were and they were their job was to watch for the groom he's coming and when he comes you got to go in and announce the bridegroom is here and, and they went out to watch, but the, the, the groom was delayed. He, he didn't come when they thought uh, he was going to, and five of them ran out of oil. You remember the story? And so there were five wise virgins and five foolish, and the five foolish virgins 
asked the five wise who had plenty of oil. They didn't run out because they took extra with them. They asked if they could borrow some of their oil, and they said, no, we can't. And that was the parable. And the lesson there for us is that you can't get to heaven on borrowed faith. You can't get to heaven on your parents' faith or your husband's faith or your wife's faith. You got to have your own faith. And Jesus said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's look now at her beauty. They say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, and the beauty of the bride of Christ is her righteousness. It's her righteousness. And since the fall of man, you know, in the Garden of Eden, we uh, have lived under the knowledge of evil. That's what was unleashed there. Remember our Genesis theme series. And so we're born into a world of sin, and we have a sin nature. Now, there are some churches and there's some theology that teaches that we are born sinners. Here at Gateway, we don't teach that. We don't believe that. We believe we're born with a sin nature, but you have to reach an age of willful disobedience, the age of accountability. Now, I'm not talking about a kid doing something you told him not to do, a two- or three-year-old. We know that's going to happen. But you can see in a two-year-old their sin nature. How many of you can see in your two-year-old a sin nature? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can see their, uh, their, their, they have a nature to rebel. But at some age, you know, they realize that their rebellion, that their sin nature has consequences. And whatever that age is, it might be different for every child. We call it the age of accountability. It could be five, six, seven, eight years old. Or nine, I don't know. Depends on what kind of a situation and what they're taught. And we need to be teaching our kids, parents, uh, you know, what's right and wrong and why we obey and, and what happens when we don't obey. You know, it hurts mommy when you don't do that. It hurts daddy when you don't do that. And it hurts God when we disobey. And so uh, we live in this kind of a world. But once we're in heaven, all these things will be removed. Those things, anything like sexual immorality or the worship of perversion, which our culture is full of, those things will be gone. I think we'll still have free will in heaven. I think we'll have free will in heaven. You could potentially rebel, but the things, the temptations, the presence of evil, they won't be there. It'll be like living in the Garden of Eden before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isaiah the prophet saw this when he wrote, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so some people ask, well, how old will we be in heaven? You know, we're talking about beauty here. How old will we be in heaven? Now, I have to tell you, I'm going to go out on a theological limb here, but I think we'll be about 30 years old. I think we'll be about 30 years old in heaven. And for most people, when you're 30, you look your best. Now, it's not all, it's just general, the general statement here. When you're 30, you look your best, and it's all downhill after that, right? How many of you can attest to that? You know, I was 30 years old when I came to this church, Bobby, you remember? 30 years old. I had a mustache. Yeah, I was looking my best in a mustache. It was the 90s. It was the mid-90s. I was carrying it over from the 80s. 
and I had a mustache, and somebody told me, they said, oh, you, you remind me of one of our last preachers. And I said, who? And he told me who, and that night I shaved my mustache off because I didn't want to be reminded. Carol, you remember who I'm talking about probably. According to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll have a heavenly body, a heavenly body, which is a body like the one Jesus had after his resurrection. I think he looked so good. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that didn't recognize him until he took communion with them? I think he looked so refreshed after three hard years and really a life of living outside. I think after three hard years of ministry and being ridiculed and the stress and the pull of the crowds, I think his physical face by the time he was, went to the cross was, was really, uh, you know, the book of Isaiah says he, he wasn't anything to look at. But on that road to Damascus, he, or to Emmaus rather, he had his glorified body, his heavenly body, and I think he looked so good that the guys didn't recognize him. Like, you, you know, you can't be Jesus because he was worn out physically. He had a body just like we did. And so uh, I think 30, 30 years old. What about food? Well, we read this morning, Revelation 22, there's going to be lots of fruit. Now, I don't know about you. I need some steak on the side, right? How many of you like a good steak? But, hey, we might have maybe the fruit will taste like steak. You know, my aunt, great aunt, used to make a pie called mince meat pie. It never had any meat in it. I don't believe. Does mince meat pie have meat in it, Carolyn? It does? Well, I don't think hers did. It was fruit, some kind of fruit. But anyway, uh, it tasted good. But you know what? I think we'll eat in heaven. I think we'll eat other things. I don't know that we'll eat meat. I don't know. I'm just, uh, I don't know that we'll eat meat because uh, what would that be like? Let's grab that lamb over there and let's have some mutton. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's going to be a lot of vegetables. <laughs> eat all, you know, you could say, well, we should be all become vegetarians. No, I say eat all the meat you can now because when you get there, there's not going to be any meat. But I don't think we'll eat for nutrition. We'll have a heavenly body. Jesus ate fish. Jesus ate fish. Now, I can see us catching some fish out of the river of life. Jesus ate fish after when he had his heavenly body, after he met the disciples on the, on the uh, seashore. I think we'll eat just for enjoyment. And if that's the case, we Americans got that down, don't we? we, we <laughs> that's what we do. I think we'll be about 30 years old with perfect metabolism. We won't have to worry about ca uh, calories. Not many 30-year-olds worry about calories, do they, or what they eat. According to Revelation 14, 13, we'll be well-rested. Amen, hallelujah for that, huh? No more need for naps, but if you want to, take a nap. Our bodies won't experience fatigue or deterioration of time or age. Hooray for the knees and the back. Our minds will be sharp. We'll have the energy to explore curiosity, research all the mysteries and glories of a new heaven, a new earth. You watch these documentaries on TV, and they're interesting to you, and you read these books. Well, in heaven, I think there'll be a huge wall where you'll see a picture, and you, you can punch that wall, and it's like a screen opening up. You'll say, oh, that's who shot President Kennedy, or that's what happened there, or J.R., whoever you're worried about. How many of you remember who shot J.R.? I'm telling my age now. But why 30? There is a little scriptural support for 30. Numbers 4.23, we know that a young Jewish man could not enter priestly service until he was 30 years old. When Saul became king of Israel, guess how old he was? 
He was 30. When David became king of Israel, guess how old he was? He was 30. When Jesus began his ministry, guess how old he was? He was 30. And so maybe we'll be about 30. And by the way, most Jewish scholars believe that Adam and Eve were about 30. That when God created them, he created them at 30 with no belly button, if you had that question. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're north of 30, then this is good news for us, isn't it? It's good news. If you're south of 30, you may be like, what, 30 years old? That's old. But, hey, if you're south of 30, your frontal lobes haven't even developed yet. So don't try not to do anything too stupid before you get there. I read some people speculate that what, what about the millions of babies that have been aborted or children who've been lost? There's some that believe that those children who were robbed of their childhood and parents who were robbed of their childhood of their children, that those children will come back at the very age and they will grow and they'll be able to experience that and then they will max out at 30. So eventually we'll all be 30. I don't know that's, again, I was out on a theological limb there. But let's be honest, when you are 30, you look your best, don't you? I mean, you look your best. I'm not saying you do or you did, uh, but who knows? I think 30's got scriptural, legit. And it, whatever you're going to look like, it's going to be a beautiful look. It's a beautiful look. Well, lastly, let's consider her joy. Wedding days are happy days, and the one in Revelation will be the happiest of all, and this marriage is a happy marriage. You see all the things on earth, the former things that bring you sorrow, no longer exist. And for some of you, this is all you need to hear. You know, you need to hear a place of perfect relationship and perfect health with no uh, medicine, no pain. Uh, It's such a wonderful hope after a life full of broken vows or broken promises or sickness, chronic pain that so many people live with every day. The thorn in your flesh that keeps you from enjoying life is going to be gone. You know, when John is describing heaven, I alluded to this earlier, he, he had a kind of a max on his language. The Greek language only had, uh, you know, uh, uh, about 60 or 70,000 words in the first century. Compare that to today's modern English, and we have about 600,000. Some people say up to a couple million words. And the way they're coming out with words today uh, like spectabulous and fantabulous, you know, I just, there's two. Uh, I, think, I think what John was, he was maxed out. He couldn't tell us all that heaven was going to be like. Instead, he said, here's what's not going to be there. I want to share with you from a list I borrowed and modified a little bit of what I think is not, not going to be in heaven. In heaven, there will be no more covid or some say COVID, and no more pandemics, no more social distancing, and no more masks. I thought I'd get some amens on that. And there'll be no more Democrats, and no more Republicans, no more independents. In fact, no more politicians, and no more elections, no more scandals, no more fake news, no more bad water from Camp Lejeune or commercials about it. No more cancer, no more divorce, no more rejection, no more loneliness, no more depression, no more band-aids, no more tissue boxes, no more casts, no more crutches, no more wheelchairs, 
No more pacemakers, no more radiation, no more chemotherapy, no more multiple sclerosis, no more bloated stomachs, and no more suicide bombers, no more school shootings, no more metal detectors, no more persecution, no more x-rays, no more MRIs, no more anxiety medication, no more middle-of-the-night phone calls, no more crosses along the side of the road, no more miscarriages, no more abortions, no more child abuse, no more rape, no more breakups, no more tornado sirens, no more hurricanes, no more typhoon, typhoons, no more earthquakes, no more tsunamis, no more coughs or colds, <laughs> no more flu shots, no more, but get yours today, no more COVID shots or boosters, no more acne, no more love handles, no more saddlebags, no more diabetes, no more cottage cheese thighs, no more double chins, no more wrinkles around the eyes, no more bad breath, no more body odor, no more deodorant, no more deodorant stains, no more shaving, plucking, or waxing, no more yoga pants, hallelujah, no more socks without a match, no more stub toes, no more welfare, no more foster care, no more yelling, no more fighting, no more bullying, no more traffic, no more Ohio drivers driving slow in the fast lane, so no more road rage, no more racism, no more addiction, no more drama, no more hormones, no more crash diets, no more Walmart pictures, no more gossip, no more guilt, no more legalism, no more liberalism, no more pretending, no more injustice, no more infertility, no more infidelity, no more insecurity, no more infomercials, no more inoperable tumors, no more security systems, no more Amber Alerts, no more embarrassing moments, no more sleepless nights, no more concussions, no more autism, no more sensory issues, no more bipolar disorder, no more child protective services, no more doctors, no more needles, no more taxes, no more bills, no more bill collectors, no more mechanics, no more dentists, no more lawyers, no more plastic surgeons, no more funeral homes, no more nursing homes, no more broken homes, no more orphanages, no more waiting rooms, no more courtrooms, no more animal hospitals, no more treatment centers, no more slums, no more tear-stained divorce papers, no more pink slips, no more foreclosure notices, no more motionless ultrasounds. No more tiny caskets, no more death, no more sadness, no more loneliness, no more crying, no more pain. Behold, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Now, some people say, how can I be happy in heaven if I have family and friends who aren't there? How can I be happy in heaven if I have family or friends who aren't there? Now, here's another we, a question we don't have a clear answer to. And I'll have to go out on another theological limb, but here's the only way I know how to answer that question. You won't remember them. Now, again, understand that when we get to heaven, it's a whole new deal. You could say, man, my preacher was way off. And if you see me up there, and hopefully you will, I'll say, man, I was way off, wasn't I? It's a whole lot better than we thought. But this is my best answer for you. You won't remember them. I don't know any other way that you won't have sorrow, because you have sorrow over what you remember. But if you have a loved one, a family member, who was not saved, and they don't make it to heaven, and you get to heaven, you won't remember them. Now, that might sound cruel, but just think about it. If you won't remember them, nobody else is going to remember them, and uh, you won't be able to have sorrow about, about them. Now, there might be a better answer, but I, I think that's the only answer I could give you. And you might say, what are we going to be doing up there for that long? But let me tell you, whatever we're going to be doing, it beats the alternative. Amen? 
Seriously, I feel you. I'm like a lot of you. It's hard for me just to sit and do nothing. My family loves to go to the beach, but less and less I, I do I like going to the beach because the beach to me is like Groundhog Day. You get up, you do the same thing, and you, you know, and you come back in, and then you do it all over. After two or three days, I like to do things. I like to do stuff. I like where I can go explore and do all sorts of things. And um, I want to tell you something. I don't think heaven's going to be boring. In Revelation 22, 3, John describes heaven as a place, he says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, some versions use the word serve instead of worship. This is a very unique word, and it's, it's worship, but it's service. It's technical service. The Greek word is latruo, and it, it, it indicates a very technical, specialized service. And what I think that indicates to us is that whatever it is you'll be doing, you will be uniquely gifted and passionate about doing it. I mean, whatever it is that brings you the most joy in this life, that's what you'll be doing in heaven. And you'll never work a day in your life. I think it'll be a place of exploration. How many of you like open houses? You know, some cities have what they call homoramas, where lots of houses in a community will decorate their houses, and you can walk in and see what you don't have in your house and walk out mad or, you know, with a list of things you can give to your husband, to, projects to do. Homoramas, they call it. Well, listen to this. Uh, that'd be a lot of fun, but if you did that in heaven, then... If you did 60 mansions an hour, 12 hours a day, it would take you 6 million years to see all of them. Now, that might not sound like fun to some of us, but, hey, some of you can go on the Homorama tour. I think it'll be a place of learning. I think there'll be opportunities for you to learn whatever it is you were interested in. Imagine taking a, a writing class with, uh, you know, with uh, one of the great writers or, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis or an art class with Michelangelo or a music class by Johann Sebastian Bach or a carpentry class taught by Joseph, the husband of Mary. It'll be a lifelong time of learning. Whatever it is will be having great joy. 1 Corinthians 2.19 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. Unsurpassed beauty and joy, and all that awaits those who remain faithful to God. And then finally, as I finish, one final invitation. The Spirit and the bride say, come. We're wrapping up the series here. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies of these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Come. Read that last part with me. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me as we close out this series? Maybe you're here today and you're not ready. Maybe you're You've got some things you need to take care of. Let me encourage you to just get ready and stay ready. Just get ready and stay ready. Don't put it off. Don't think, well, I've got to change all this stuff. And then just get ready. It's all going to be worth it. Whatever changes you have to make, whatever sacrifices, whatever commitment, it's all going to be worth it one day. This life is so short, but the next is for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word for reminding us of the promise that awaits for those who are faithful to you amen lord come quickly and lord 
may you find your people ready and waiting. In Jesus' name, amen. You got any questions?